2: For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with writer Kenny Fries about living with and writing about disability. We will all be disabled. Whether it's from a virus, or a slip in the bathtub, or old age, we will become disabled in some way. Here's Debbie Millman. What makes
0: a life worth living? Do looks, ability, and talent make your life more valuable than someone else's? Kenny Fries has made it his life's work to understand just that, and he should know better than anyone. As a disabled Jewish gay man, he has spent years thinking about things as an outsider. He's transformed his personal journeys into deeply insightful books, shedding light on the devastating effects of discrimination against the imperfect. Today I'm going to talk to Kenny Fries about his desire to understand the undesirable, and the connections between his personal and our political situation. Kenny Fries, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you, Debbie.
0: Kenny, I understand that your favorite book when you were a child was Are You My Mother? And is it true that you still sometimes dream about the book, but wake up wondering if the book actually exists?
2: Yes, I do.
0: Why why is that?
2: Because I couldn't find it. I think I once did a search for it, and I couldn't find it. So I said, oh, am I imagining this? I also imagine TV shows that I don't know if they existed or not. And it turns out sometimes they do and sometimes they don't.
0: I sometimes dream that I'm speaking another language. And when I wake up, I think I'm actually verbal and, and fluent in that language. And then I realize <laughs> that there is no such language as that language. But, yeah. you know, there you go. When you were born in 1960, nobody knew whether you would live or die. After four weeks in an incubator, your parents were able to take you home. But nobody knew whether you'd ever be able to walk. How did you survive?
2: That's a good question. Um I survived because my parents did a search for a doctor. Um, and at the time what they did with children with, you know, with my particular disability, which didn't really have a name, was to just get rid of the legs. Um, and to so amputate. Pa- amputate, yeah. My parents decided for some reason not to do that. And they searched for a doctor who wouldn't do that. And they found Dr. Joseph Milgram at the Hospital for Joint Diseases, which was then up on Madison 125th Street. And he told my parents that when I grew up, he wanted me to get up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water and to have the feeling of my own legs. So that's how it happened. Yeah.
0: In your first nonfiction book, Body, Remember, you write that no one really knew why at birth you were missing the fibula, why there were sharp anterior curves of the tibia in both of your legs and you had only three toes and posterior calf bands on each foot. There was no scientific name for your birth defect so to speak. In medical records, it was simply described that the child at birth had congenital deformities of the lower extremities. Do you know more about what you were born with now?
2: Not much. I mean, I know that I was born premature. um, Four weeks? Around that, yeah, I think. There was no known cause. You know, I mean, it was thought at the time it was when thalidomide was around, but my mother never took thalidomide, so that wasn't, yeah, it just didn't, didn't happen. I don't know. It just I, happened, yeah.
0: I read that your father fainted when your maternal grandmother screamed, my daughter gave birth to a freak. Why did your family members tell
2: you this? I think it was my, a cousin who told me this. I don't know why. Never liked that grandmother. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I would think. Yeah, but I just never liked her, and like you know, that was yet another reason not to like her. But yeah, that's uh, your sure. father
0: really fainted.
2: Supposedly, yeah. You know, you grow up with these myths, right? Just like they said, I w- learned to walk in two casts. I mean, come on. So, <laughs> I don't think that happened. <laughs> so you know, we we create these stories about ourselves, uh, or people create them for you, and then they, they become real.
0: When you were a little boy, I read that you waited for your big toe on each foot to give birth to two more toes. So then you would have, like, everybody else the normal five. And you assumed that this was how everyone obtained five toes by a process of, like, a paramecium's mitosis. And I thought, well, that's when he became a creative person right then. Your imagination.
2: Wow. That's that's a nice gift you just gave me. I never thought of that before. That's a, that's really interesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> when once your parents got over the shock of your birth, you became the first disabled student admitted to a regular Brooklyn, New York elementary school. I also was in that elementary school system in New York City. Um, you were among the first generation of children to be mainstreamed in public school, but that also meant that you didn't come into contact with disabled people until later. Um, can you share the story of the boy you passed every day on your walks back and forth to school?
2: Yeah, that was the, the beginning of of the book, Body Remember. Um, yeah, I used to come down the street, and there'd be a little kid there, and he would always ask me every day, what happened to your legs? And I would give him the same answer. I was born that way. And, you know, as I say in the beginning of the book, I I don't know why I kept going down the same street. It was very easy to go down another street we just didn't think there was options. And I think that's a good metaphor for something. Um probably we just do these things and then we have to figure out um, why we did them later. And uh and then in my new book in, in the province of the gods I mean I come to Japan and I have one of my first revelations is that I'm stared at and looked at there because I am a gaijin, a foreigner, which I am, um not because I'm disabled. And then I have a scene where I'm over the, the the river near where I live and thinking about how all the things I learned about disability were not mine. They were the societies, they were other people's, and I had internalized them and they just seemed like my own. And that was like the first set of big revelations that's in in, in the province of the gods.
0: How would you define the word disability
2: or being disabled? Oh, wow, that's a that's a humdinger. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I usually wait a little bit further into the show before I um,
0: unravel those.
2: Yeah. Um, in my case, it's physical. So I would say a, a, a physical disability is a physical difference, something that's seen as different and perceived as different. Not, it's not a something pejorative. It's just something that's that's different from what's, what, what's usually expected.
0: You talk a lot about experiencing people staring at you as you were growing up and having had the privilege of listening to you speak i've i've also heard you talk about this notion of of good staring versus bad staring and it got me to think about the notion of staring just in general so we might stare at something that we don't understand we seem compelled to look at a traffic accident as we're passing by in a car hence that traffic jam that happens the rubbernecking, there's even a term for it, right? Right. Um, we stare at people that we perceive as as beautiful or celebrities. What is it in our human nature that compels us to be staring in this way, in this effort to see something?
2: I would imagine it goes back to something scientific. Um, you know, my other book is, is Darwin-related, uh, The History of My Shoes and the Evolution of Darwin's Theory. So I would think that it has something to do with looking for a mate, perhaps, or looking out for predators, um, what's dangerous, what's not dangerous, what could give us the best children. I mean, they're two different extremes. I think that that's probably what it goes back to, you know, for when we were, you know, humans were in a different environment. And this is the carryover for it. I, wonder what a, I don't know what a scientist would think about that, and I'm a layperson, so, but that's what would be my guess, where it comes from.
0: But it has, the word disabled itself feels like it, it has real pejorative connotations. It's not an objective word. It's, it's a word that is embedded with judgment. And how do we as a culture try to shift that perception?
2: Um, Yeah, we're stuck with that word, aren't we? And the history of the word, Uh, which is why I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, when groups try to reclaim words um, in the disability community, it used to be crip and cripple. I don't know. I think we're we're stuck in this dialectic of disability and what I call non-disability. Most people call able-bodied, but I don't use that term. Non-disabled? Yeah, I use non-disabled. And as long as we're in that dialectic, I think we're in trouble and we can't get out of it. Because it's not a fixed category. I mean, at any moment, we will all be disabled, whether it's from a virus or a slip in the bathtub or old age, we will become disabled in some way. So it's something that everybody has in common. You know, people always said when when Body Remember came out, I was asked on a radio show, why would somebody who's not gay, disabled or Jewish want to read your work? So I said to them, well, my book is about the relationship between the body and memory. We all have bodies and we all remember. So um we're stuck with this, in this dialectic between disability and, and non-disability and it's defined by the word that comes at the end on what we're supposedly able to do but that's really not accurate because um you know it goes back to Darwin again the whole survival of the fittest and which is a term that Darwin did not use it was it was coined by somebody else and he didn't use it to the third edition of on the origin of species but it's we get it wrong because we cut off the last part of the sentence. It's the in it's the survival of the fittest in a particular environment. So I can be more able, in quotes, um, than than somebody else in certain situations. Um the big example of that is the the scene in the History of My Shoes and the Evolution of Darwin's theory, where I'm climbing the mountain with my with my then boyfriend Ian, who's six foot whatever, and um but he is having a lot of trouble, whereas my feet and my specially designed shoes fit right into what should be handholds, but I can use them as, as toeholds. And so it was easy for me, or easier. So you never know. I mean, there's, when I'm in a group of people, it depends on what the disabilities are. Sometimes I'm more able to, you know, move chairs than they are. Um, but when I'm in a group of people that are, con- are non-disabled, they could move chairs more easily than I am. So it really depends on the context. It's really the context that defines what disability is
0: you tackle the subject of identity around several themes you talk about being Jewish, being gay, being disabled, but what about being a writer? <laughs> that one again
2: I mean that's I would love to just be considered a writer to be honest with you. um people always you know I would love somebody to just talk to me about how I put the words together or how the narrative works uh but you know because of the subject matter, I'm always you know. most of my it's about the content which is fine there's a lot of content there Uh, but you know the joke I've been saying I I tell people is that when I was younger I think I was looked at more as a gay writer and now I'm looked at as more of a disabled writer but no I haven't changed it's just you know whatever the the circumstances around and the zeitgeist Yeah. yeah what they yeah you know
0: you you have a degree in English and American literature from Brandeis, and then you went and got an MFA from Columbia University School for the Arts in theater and playwriting. And I know you were quite interested in the theater as you were growing up. You performed, sang, played the piano, acted in your school plays and musicals. Did you at one point, at that point in your life, want to work in the theater?
2: Yeah, I probably still do. Um, and the most exciting thing is when I was commissioned to write an opera libretto for the Houston Grand Opera a few years ago. And that was just thrilling to me to be back in a rehearsal room. And yeah, I mean, theater was a very big part of my life. It still is. I go to the theater all the time. Even in Berlin, where I live, I go to the theater. I would I'd love to write another opera. But I, I think I stopped writing plays because I couldn't I didn't want to externalize things all the time. And to write a play, you had to externalize everything. It's all about action. And I just didn't want to do that anymore. And I wanted to concentrate more on language and and that sort of thing. Then it just didn't seem right to do it anymore. You officially, in
0: quotes, started writing in 1988 after you began attending Malay Colony for the Arts. What motivated your going there and starting to write?
2: I've always had trouble writing at home. why? I, How come? I just I think the the deep focus that I need to get to the place that that works for me as a writer, it just doesn't happen with normal daily life. Um so all of my first drafts have been written away from home. Uh, I was able with my la- within the province of the gods to write the twenty seven it went through twenty seven drafts, Debbie. Um, so uh, that I was able to do some of that work at home, thankfully. And now I'm starting a new book and I'm th- attempting to write some of the first draft at home We'll see if it goes. I just never been able to do that. Um, I'm not an everyday writer. I'm a very bad role model for my students. and i um, I come to the page kind of late. i I come to the page after things are a little bit settled in my head. I'm not someone to just work things out on the page. I mean, I obviously will work things out on the page. But just to get started, I need to know what I'm doing. And I needed to, to go away. So I, I don't know. At some point, I think I've had 40 residencies all over the place to, to do the work. So Malay was the first, the first one. Yeah.
0: Do you have a different approach when you're writing poetry versus fiction or nonfiction?
2: I don't write much poetry anymore. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's been a while. So uh, I think that no matter what I'm writing, the word is—it comes down to the word and the sentence. My books are not very long, and I think the compression is what I learned from writing poetry.
0: In one of your poems, a poem titled "Body Language," you turn the idea of body and memory into a metaphor and ask, "What is a scar if not the memory of a once-open wound?" Um, That really moved me. And I was wondering if you would read that poem today here on Design Matters. Sure.
2: Body Language. What is a scar, if not the memory of a once open wound? You press your finger between my toes, slide the soap up the side of my leg until you reach the scar with the two holes where the pins were inserted 20 years ago. Leaning back, I remember how I pulled the pin from my leg, how, in a waist-high cast, I dragged myself from my room to show my parents what I had done. Your hand on my scar brings you back to the tub, and I want to ask you, What do you feel when you touch me there? I want you to ask me, What are you feeling now? But we do not speak. You drop the soap in the water, and I continue washing alone. Do you know my father would bathe my feet, as you do, as if it was the most natural thing? But up to now I have allowed only two pair of hands to touch me there, to be the salve for what still feels like an open wound. The skin is healed, but the scars grow deeper. When you touch them, what do they tell you about my life?
0: Thank you. Absolutely beautiful. You have said that familiarity can impede recognition and that over time the body adjusts until what was once a severe disturbance becomes white noise. When one is accustomed to it, even a screeching car or ambulance siren will not attract attention. Is this how you came to get used to your own body?
2: I think so. I think that um, when you become accustomed to something well, you know, here we go off on a on a crazy tangent. But you know, people say they don't want to normalize Donald Trump, but when you get used to something, how do you not normalize something? How does it? How do you not become accustomed to it? And I think in that particular passage, I'm talking about probably the back pain that I was started to have when I was uh, in my twenties because my my leg length discrepancy, um, which is still there, and sometimes I don't realize how much discomfort my body is in until if I get a massage, I said, oh my God, really? That's what's been going on? It's kind of sad when I think about that because I think above all this, um, we're sitting here talking and we're just, you would never know it, but there's things going on with my body at this moment that I'm just not aware of. And if I, maybe if I, you know, paid more attention to it at this moment, I would feel the, the pain in the right side of my back or something like that. So I think it has something to do with, you know, you become accustomed to something. Um And it's also, I mean, it's the same thing about addiction, right? You, 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 tolerance, you, you tolerance and metabolism. Right, and you keep having to have more of something because your body gets used to it. Yeah.
0: You've written about how while you didn't feel disabled, you internalized the devaluing messages of society. So from doctors, from your family, and from your brother. And your brother was particularly cruel to you. It was extremely hard for me, Kenny, to read that he was more than emotionally abusive to you. He was also sexually abusing you from a very, very young age. How on earth did you survive?
2: I don't know. Uh, I did. Um, I think that somewhere along the line, I don't know where, it must have been somewhere from my parents, um, that I just had this belief in myself I mean, I have my moments where I sure don't. But at the core, I know my worth. Same thing with my writing. If it gets ignored, it's not about me. It's about, you know, the the culture that doesn't get what I'm doing or can't find a place for what I do. Um, so it, it's if you don't believe it's innate, then it had to come from some somewhere. And it had to come from the people that were around me at the time. Now, ironically, in the difficult things, they were also the people who— allowed the abuse to happen. <laughs> so that's a very difficult contradiction to have. But my parents have always been able to um they've always been there. As a matter of fact, this is the first book they're not there. They're in Florida. My father has difficulty traveling, so they're not at a reading this time. Berlin is the first place I've lived and out of many places where they don't won't be coming to visit because my father can't travel that far anymore. So they've they've always been there. Um and I think that that uh that's a very important thing i yeah there's
0: there's no question now that I've read all of your nonfiction books that your parents really do love you mm-hmm. um and and that was also something that I grew as I was reading your three memoirs to really feel very deeply um and and the pain that they felt when you were in pain. And you ask this question in your writing, you say, is it true that once you are forced against your will to experience something your body is supposed to enjoy, you remember those experiences over and over until they become part of every situation that involves being touched by someone you love? And I was wondering now, all these years later, would you answer that question differently than you might have then?
2: When you were when you were saying that, I was saying um, I originally thought no, but I don't think that's true. I think that I'm just um, I think going back to what we were talking about. I think maybe I'm just more accustomed to it. I still think that those early experiences are still there, still at the root of a lot of my relationships. Except that I think I'm more in control of that now. I could say, "Oh, that happened. That's why." You don't have to go down that way if i'm aware of it i'm i mean some i think the people to ask are actually people i'm in relationship with they would know more than than i do um so um but yeah i think that's it's really interesting to hear this stuff. <laughs> i really haven't thought about it in a very long time and so i think that yeah i think it's still there i think it still informs what i do and how i react and my relate and it definitely informs my relationships but i'm more aware of it so i don't have to go down it as far as i used to
0: When you were a child, you needed to create a myth that would explain not only why you were born with a deformed lower body, but why you had to suffer through so much pain. And you (laughs) felt like there had to be a reason, and it had to be large enough to drown out the physical pain. Um, So you began to believe that your deformed body and the pain it caused you were a sign from God that you were important. And then you went to Japan, where you were shocked to learn that Buddhism See's disability in terms of reincarnation that someone must have done something wrong in their past life that was shocking to me. And is is that still the way it's perceived now today?
2: I think so. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a religion scholar, so I don't know. I mean, but my understanding of Buddhism is that that's the way they see disability. Um but, you know, many things in religions we don't really Believe anymore. So I I think it's a tenant that's at the basis of the religion, though, and I don't think you can get rid of it that that easily. And it's not only you, it could be something your parents did or something somewhere. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I remember reading several years ago about a baby that was born with, I think, four or six extra extremities. And Her parents wanted to remedy that right at um, the time she was born. And apparently, I think it was in India, the people of India thought she was a god.
2: Well, Ganesha, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and
0: and didn't want them to do anything to her because they believed that she was a reincarnated god. It's so interesting, these myths we tell ourselves, whether somebody that is different is demonized or sainted.
2: What's interesting about that example is that... um you would think, oh, wow, like a god, so let's leave it. But then it goes a step further and they have to be a god in order to have that, that difference. Can't we just have the difference and not have them be a god? Can't it just be? I mean it has to be something uh, preordained or divine or, you know, or the reverse uh, in order for it to be accepted. Why just not accept it? What kind of species are we
0: that are continually discriminating against what we perceive as other, whether it be race, whether it be gender, orientation, disability, or ability? In 100 years, are we going to look back on these times and think, what were we thinking?
2: Yes, and not very long ago, it was it was not legal for a disabled person to be in public. It was the, the ugly laws, which the last one, they weren't enforced, but the last one went off the books in 1974. I don't know, Debbie. That's a good question. I mean, is it human nature to just do this? Um, Again, it's the comparison to make yourself feel better or to feel secure. You have to find out how you relate to somebody in a hierarchical way. I, I don't know. It's a very strange thing, but it seems to be endemic in not only Western, all all cultures.
0: But we we not only do this with how we appear, but then how we want to present ourselves. So we not only discriminate against what we perceive as others, but then we want to present ourselves as better than so that we can feel better about ourselves, or at least try to convince ourselves of that.
2: Yeah, there's a whole thing I sometimes do with my students in some disability studies classes, um, is we go down, make a list of what's perceived as normal, and you make the long list, you know, white, you know, middle class, has a job, has blah, 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 blah. And when we have the list, we look and, and say, anyone here fit the list? Nobody fits the list. So we're basically we're basically striving for something that doesn't even exist. And I mean, I guess that the way the society is set up, that as long as I, maybe some of it has to do with capitalism today, you know, the, the more you can have people strive to be something, the more products you can sell, the more improvement things you can, especially in the United States, the self-improvement thing is just crazy. And I think that that's, you know, it keeps people quiet. It keeps people from complaining. It keeps people from protesting.
0: Your first trip to Japan was supported by a Creative Arts Fellowship and the National Endowment for the Arts, and your second was as a Fulbright Scholar. You went there to investigate how the country views disability, how mortality is portrayed there, and what role gods play in all of it. The result is a magnificent new book titled In the Province of the Gods. Congratulations on on this wonderful, wonderful book. What made you decide to study how disability is perceived in Japan. Why Japan?
2: I was at a point in my life where I was having mobility issues, and I thought that my time was running out to live abroad again. So um, I applied for all these grants to go abroad, and I got the difficult one to go to Japan. (laughs) I got the one that was really hard to get. I didn't know very much about Japan. I didn't have much interest in Japan. It just happened. And so as all things that happened with me in Japan, and I'm not a new age kind of guy that thinks like everything happens for a reason and woo 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 kind of thing.
0: Oh, darn. I am.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) not me. And so um, I went off to Japan where everything just when it didn't work, it landed up working. Um, You know, you ask – in Japan, you ask questions and you get answers to something (laughs) completely different. And I just decided early on that I would take what was given to me and make what I could of it. And as soon as I was able to accept that, that's how I lived there. You start the book by stating
0: Tokyo might be the only city in the world where you can make a right, another right, another right, and another right, and not end up in the same place as you began. So how hard was it to acclimate to this entirely new land and culture and zeitgeist?
2: It was crazy. It was really crazy. Um, you know, there's this thing in Culture Shock, when they, they say about Culture Shock that you you become really enamored of these things in a culture and then, after a certain amount of time, you get really annoyed at the culture. and it's the same things that you were excited about that Sounds ne- like love, <laughs> yeah, but, but that never happened to me in Japan. Uh, and it never okay. happened with Mike either. the the man who I meet who becomes my husband. and um and uh, it's just something there's something about that culture that just just speaks to me in a in a way that I can't even describe. And I think that um, I remember being there and that some of the maps are not oriented to the north as we're used to. And so I'm trying to figure out when I get to a subway uh, stop, where am I going? And I'm going. I can't even figure it out because I don't realize that the, the map is turned sideways. Um, but that was what it was like. And I was in this place of just total Adventure, Which was just exhilarating. I would leave the house in the morning to go to a private Japanese lesson thinking I would leave near 9 o'clock. I'd be home by 11. No, I would come home after midnight. My phone would ring. Somebody wanted to meet me there. I would go there. I'd land up at GB, the bar that I, that I hung out in. And that was my life in Japan.
0: I was struck by the realization, you, you brought it up earlier in our interview, that you were being treated differently, not because you were disabled, but because you were a foreigner. Yep. Um, Gaijin, is that the word? Yeah,
2: Gaijin, yeah. Um,
0: what was that like for you to suddenly be noticed or treated in a certain way for a very different reason than you were used to?
2: It made sense, because I was a foreigner, <laughs> where it never makes sense for me to be treated as different in my own country, because I am I'm, you know, supposedly quote-unquote belong here. So, yeah, so that was my first big revelation, and I was never accosted because I was disabled. I never felt people were acting strangely because I was disabled. If they were acting strangely, it was because I was a foreigner. I mean, I noticed that because um, Brenda, the poet who lived upstairs for me, uh, Brenda Shaughnessy, who's quite a well-known poet, she had this experience when she first got there that people acted strange and stared at her. And um, when she went into a store, they didn't know how to deal with her because they were afraid they couldn't help her because they wouldn't understand her. And they couldn't speak English well enough and she couldn't speak Japanese. So it was all about this foreignness. It wasn't about my being a disabled person. Now, what people went home and said to each other, you know, I saw this strange-looking guy on the street or something, that would never – I would never know. The public and private are so separate in Japan. So as long as I'm not – don't have to deal with it, I don't care – But, as I say in the book, uh, you know, this question of what is it like to be disabled in Japan, I was asked all the time by Japanese audiences, I couldn't answer that question. I could only say what it was like for this particular disabled person who was a foreigner, who had my particular disability, because I know being disabled as being a disabled Japanese person is not an easy lot. It's not easy. Would you
0: say it's harder than being disabled in the United States?
2: I would say that you don't have the protections of the law that we have here, though they're not as strong as they should be. There's an employment uh, quota in Japan where companies are supposed to hire a certain percentage of disabled people, and for government, it's a little higher percentage. I just had a conversation with Karen Nakamura in Berkeley. She's both Japanese and a, and disabled and a disability studies professor. And she thinks, you know, the ADA, the American Disabilities Act, has not helped employment here at all, where maybe we need a system like you have in Japan where the quota happens. But a lot of the companies don't follow it. Um, they don't care. The penalties are minor. They only care when they're listed on a list that they've done it over a few years. And then the shame kicks in and they don't like it anymore. But a lot of the jobs that they're employing people are menial labor. There's nothing you know, grandiose about this. So, I mean, it just it shows up differently in society. Um, I think we're more visible here. And we have more political power here. I did meet something that didn't get into the book. I met a a young woman who was part of a grassroots disability organization called Footloose, and she said something to me that was very stay has stayed with me. She said, "We are very far from the government here. Mm. Yeah, maybe we're wrong, but we can protest and can change things here. You really don't get that feeling living in Japan."
0: Your disability was described as a physical fact. in in the book, and I'm wondering if you can share what that means. I thought the irony was that this phrase was given to you by a non-native English speaker, but this physical fact seems to be quite important to the story.
2: Yes, um, it was given to me by a man who goes by the name of Masa, who I become involved with, a Japanese man in Tokyo, and um, he described my disability to somebody as basically my, you know, I told him about your physical fact, and I said, wow, what a gift that is um, to be, you know, that's basically what it is. It's like your hair color or your eye color. It's no big deal. It just is what it is.
0: Like lefty righty. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful way to talk about anything specific about a person's presentation. Yeah. You are also in Japan to investigate the possibility that one of the Japanese gods of fishermen and luck, Ibisu, did Mm -hmm. I pronounce that correctly, might actually be disabled. So an actual god that might be disabled. And when you get to Japan, you initially find out that Ibisu is actually a popular beer. (laughs) What did you eventually discover about the god?
2: Yeah. That was – it's funny because there's also an area of Tokyo that was called Ibisu. But the first time I was there, I didn't live near there. So I didn't really know about it. The second time I was in Japan, I actually met with the man who claims that this is so. His name is Hanada Shunsho. He's a wonderful disability studies scholar. And his claim is that not only Ibisu but all of the seven Shichifukujin, the seven lucky gods, um, which a lot of people return home with, the little tchotchkes that they buy – All seven of them are disabled and he goes through the whole litany of them and what their disability is. And the funny thing about it, there's one female god named Benton, and in his article that I read before I met him, he says that she has some sexual disability that he's too embarrassed to talk about.
0: And what would you ever find out what yes, that was? Yes, I do. Okay, good. Yeah. Tell and me, when please. When I talk
2: to him, he she's a nymphomaniac.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that so, Silver Linings Playbook or something? <laughs> I don't know, but that was you
2: know. And if you read her myth, she really, I mean, she really horses and soldiers and whatever she oh, sees. Yeah. okay. Yeah. So yeah, so I finally you know he his claim is that they were all disabled, and if you really look at them, and he goes back into the language, and there's a creation myth involved, and um, it's it's very very persuasive. Um, so yeah, so we have these seven lucky gods who are revered and borders is all over the place, and unknown to most people, they're disabled gods.
0: And Ibisu is sitting not quite right, not really standing, not really sitting. And so I think it's been accepted that he has some kind of paralysis, but do we know for sure what the actual thing is that um, he's...
2: Hanro Shinshō says it's cerebral palsy. Okay. Yeah, which is also his his own disability, which is um, Hanara Shinshō's disability as well. But disability is surprisingly central to Japanese culture. I mean, that's what's so interesting, uh, that the blind Biwa Hoshi, the, the blind chanting priests who roam the country basically spread the legends and myths of the country and unify the country. And some people think that it actually spread the, the Japanese language. And that's so their language and the whole mythology of the country are based on because of these disabled chanters, these, these blind priests. How more central can you get?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Before you left for Japan, you took Japanese lessons in a class taught by an American who had lived in Japan. And he told you that it would be difficult for Japanese people to understand your sense of humor. I guess as a Jewish gay man, it would be (laughs) difficult to relate, I don't know, and it would be difficult for you to develop deep friendships, but this was hardly the case for you. It seems as if you made some of the most extraordinary friendships of your life while you were there.
2: I did. I really did. And um, with unexpected people, um, there's a character in the book, my good friend, now now dead, M.M., who was the first simultaneous interpreter in Japan. And um, you know, I met him at the the Japan U.S. Friendship Commission uh, reception. You know, basically, I guess it was a fundraiser for them. Who knows? Who knows? And uh, I met him there, and who knew I would be, become really close friends with this short, balding, elderly Japanese man who was very well known. Simultaneous translator. Yeah, 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 yeah one of the, the first. Right. Yeah. Yes. So when, and he's, the, he's the one when presidents came or minister, foreign ministers, he's the one who did the interpretation. When Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, he was the voice that Japanese people heard during the Japanese translation.
0: As you spent more time in the gardens of Japan, you found yourself writing not about disability, but about Japanese gardens. And this body of work became a poem sequence that became a song cycle, as well as a Japanese cloth designed by a Japanese calligrapher. I think it's called a tenugui? Tenugui, yeah. And now a book is published as a companion to in the province of the gods. And I was wondering if you could read a poem from that book for us as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, this one... um, it's a. It's. A, they're all about specific gardens, and they're all about usually a specific place within the garden. And this is a, a poem about Rukugian. It's a. It's a. It's one of these famous gardens in, in Japan. And this is called. Uh, there's a place in the garden Rukugian, called Takimi no Chaya. So um, I think it's kind of self-explanatory. It's 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 a garden in in Tokyo. So this is, the, this is the poem about Rokugian. In an arbor by a stream, a sheltered bench reached by stones, listen, the water falls and falls again, passes under the arched bridge into the wider pond, through the small turtle-shaped island, from a shaded corner, an entire world. I love
0: that. Thank you. You've stated that on the surface, these poems seem to be about what you saw in Japan, the flowers, the tea houses, the rocks, the bridges. But at the end of your stay in Japan, you realize that what you were actually writing about was what was held in the gardens. So a microcosm of what it means to be alive in this ever-changing mortal world and go on to state that living life in a mortal world is perhaps the greatest lesson learned from the experience of living with a disability. How so?
2: I think the lesson one learns from living a disabled life is that life is change. I mean, alluded to it before, you know, things, the body just changes, whether it's just through age or through climate or through disease or through growing old or an accident. The body changes. That's just the nature of the world is change. And it's something that Japanese culture understands much more than we do in the West, There it is. I mean, there's where everything comes together. Japan, my body, you know, disability, mortality, impermanence, all the themes of the book can be – it's because of – I mean, again, disability is central. I mean, this is something I've come to learn in in my life is that this thing that's marginalized and um, ostracized and discriminated against and wanting people wanting to get rid of and people so afraid of is the actual central truth of our life is that we live a mortal life, We nothing's permanent, and disability is the thing that that is the key.
0: Right before you return to Japan for your second visit, you find out that you are HIV positive, and you write about the experience of hearing the diagnosis from your doctor in this way. You say, waiting for the elevator, I feel as if I have left a part of myself in Dr. Shea's office, and then my life now feels sharply bifurcated into what was and what is. Do you still feel that way?
2: No. And that's where, um, I mean, I think that's the movement of the the last part of the book goes from feeling that there was a before and an after to feeling that life is a continuum. And that happens because of many reasons. um, But It comes to a climax when I meet two of the surviving Hiroshima maidens, uh, the group of women who went to the United States in 1955 for medical treatment. And there's something about my talking and interviewing them that makes me see life differently. I realize that life is not a before and after. I think what really, why I felt that way was because Well, two things. I was born disabled, so there was never a before and after. I didn't become disabled in an accident or something like that. But before the HIV diagnosis, I I almost died of blood clots in my lungs. So there was a lot of physical things going on there. But as Japan had this quality, um, just like I was able to make friends and people understood my sense of humor— I was able to figure out that life is not these things that there isn't there isn't this one nothing cuts your life in two, even though it might seem that. And I'm sure there are people that have accidents and think that they're you know, but I my experience became I became whole. Now the other night, this should have been clear to me, <laughs> but you know, some things aren't. I was in conversation uh, at an event with Matthew Galloway, a writer who just wrote a book called Hashtag Gods. And he talked about how he saw the imagery in the book about HIV starting to be—I would see it everywhere in the world. I would see it, um, like, you know, I'd be up in the big building in Rapongi, and I would look out, and I would see all the um, traffic, and I would see that as virus, you know, as stuff going through. And uh, it just became more of a part of me and a part of the way I saw things. And then, of course, I met my husband. And as luck would have it, he was the first person I had to divulge being HIV positive that I was going to be intimate with. And his attitude was almost like, you know, you stepped in gum. I mean, it just didn't make a difference.
0: Oh, no, it was better than that. that he said, you'll need, to, you'll need more than low T cells to get rid of me. And it was perfect. I would yeah. have proposed right then and there yeah. if I were you. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're wonderfully healthy now. You've been married to Mike for 11 years? Almost 11 years. 11 yeah. years. There's so much hope in, in this book about what is the highest in, in humans. Um, but you do go on to state that none of us know when or how we will die. As we live our lives, most of us do not think about this very much. Now I think about it all the time, and so I have two questions. First, do you still think about it all the time now that it's been eleven years since this all happened? And are you afraid of death?
2: Um, do I feel that it's? The, do I feel the same way? Um, hmm, that's a good question. You ask good questions. Um, I think I think about it all the time. I think I think about every time I take my pills, which keep me alive, which is now twice a day. So yes. Um, The most frightening thing for me, people, my friends with HIV really laugh at me, when I have to go for my results, you know, um, every six months, it's almost like I'm going to have a heart attack. Thankfully, in, in Germany where I live, it only takes two days to get the results. In Canada, it was two where I lived with Mike for a while, it took two weeks. And as that time would go, you'd feel my – and then sitting in the doctor's office waiting, I was like, it felt like I was going to have a stroke. It still happens. Now it's just <laughs> compressed into, into two, two days. days. But those hours, I mean, I'm a mess. And my friends just think I'm crazy. So, yeah, am I, still, am I afraid of death? Yes.
0: Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yes. So I have I have one last question for you. You and your husband Mike are now living in Germany, as you've mentioned, in Berlin, and I believe you're working on a new book titled "Stumbling Over History." Is yes. that the correct title? Yeah. So tell us what that book is about, and uh, when we can expect to to read it.
2: Well, as usual, I started out writing something different, and it turned into something else. So I I went to Germany to look at the lives of disabled people who grew up in East Germany, the communist part of the country, thinking it would be a very interesting subject to look at um, German culture, but under two different political, so, you know, sociopolitical systems. But as soon as I got there, I was literally stumbled over the history of what happened to disabled people under the Nazis. Um, And you also
0: wrote about this for the New York Times just
2: recently. Yes, in September. Yeah, just a month, a little over a month ago. And uh, there was a program, the Nazi program called Action T4, which um, killed uh, the program itself, killed around 70,000 people. But when it was officially stopped, it still went on. So around 300,000 disabled people were killed. And then I realize I had to even go back even earlier, because in the 1920s, uh, the sterilizations were happening, the mistreatments of disabled people, not only in Germany, in the UK, in the US. Um, you know, we had the the Buck versus Bell, the Supreme Court decision here was, you know, um, one generation of imbeciles is enough, was the opinion. Um, and so I, I couldn't write a book about disability in Germany unless I tackled this. And that kind of has taken taken root. And so, I, so the last few years, I've spent time visiting the six T4 killing sites where the disabled people were killed, and I, I'm fashioning a narrative book about that. So that's the project. When you might see it, well, let's hope this one doesn't take me 27 drafts. <laughs> <laughs> My books take, have been taking a long time, but this is the first time I actually started a new book before this the other one came out. So... Maybe we'll be lucky.
0: And maybe you'll come back and we'll talk about that as well.
2: I would love to.
0: Kenny Fries, thank you for being on Design Matters today. Kenny Freeze's new book is called In the Province of the Gods and his companion book of poetry, In the Gardens of Japan. You can also find out more about Kenny Fries on his website, Kenny Freeze. that's spelled F-R-I-E-S dot com. This is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: For more information about Design Matters, or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to DebbieMelman.com. If you like the podcast, please write a review on iTunes, and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City.